Rather than having made prudent life choices all along, most of us tend to only seek healthful solutions once we've had a scare in the form of a diagnosis or event. This is HealthScape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. In this program, we'll show you the techniques, innovations, and holistic ideas that you can use to put yourself on the path to better health. Now, here is Dr. Trevor Campbell. Good day. I'm your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell. Many believe that our very way of life is making us ill. Our question today is what part are our hardwired survival skills playing in all of this? And my guest is Dr. Robert Barrett, co-author of the book Hardwired, How Our Instincts to be Healthy are Making Us Sick, published by Springer Nature. His bio is impressive and lengthy. Um, he has spent much of his time studying behavior, group dynamics, and organizational culture. And he's the recipient of 12 major academic awards for his contributions to the way we perceive and remedy deep conflict. Dr. Barrett's primary focus is on why we do the things we do and how individuals and teams can reach top performance. Dr. Barrett's experiences are diverse and eclectic, having interviewed Nigerian recruiters and leaders of death squads on how they indoctrinate fighters, being involved in novel and innovative patient and healthcare worker safety programs, including anti-fatigue measures. He has also lectured senior Canadian forced officers deployed in Afghanistan on intercultural negotiation and was the lead researcher on a unique program to help mitigate astronaut crew conflict in space for future Mars missions. Dr. Barrett's work on motivation and team dynamics is also supported by 13 years of competitive cross-country skiing and a Canada Games gold medal. He has written for the Huffington Post and has appeared many times on national TV and radio. He is also an international airline captain and a human factors expert. Dr. Barrett, welcome to Healthscape. Good to have you. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So in Hardwire, your contention is that our survivalist skills that have allowed us to reach our present level of complexity and sophistication and functionality are now paradoxically working against us. Please explain. Yeah, the, the idea behind Hardwired, uh, first of all, came from uh, the, it was kind of a brainchild uh, when we decided to look at how medicine uh, from a medical standpoint and how the, our social world uh, interact uh, to either improve our wellness or, or cause some detriment to our wellness. And we looked at two primary schools of thought. I guess it's good to start there. There was the one school of thought is that we're, we're born as, as blank slates and that uh, culture and our experiences fill in the blanks or that the second one is really that we're born with some innate survival instincts that are kind of baked into us and, uh, and these inform our behavior as we go along. But in reality, I think that humans are a combination of both. Um, and that's partly what actually makes us really human is this <clears throat> ability to reason and change our own environment. So, so we're a bit of both. And this, we started looking to really focus on the evolutionary blueprint and how that works um, in our day-to-day -day lives at a subconscious level. And a lot of us don't really realize how much of our behavior is actually informed 
by this, whether it's, you know, what we desire to eat or how we relate to others in social groups or our focus on, on finding a mate. These are often driven by these, you know, kind of innate uh, hardwires, hardwired instincts. And, and these are survivalist in, instincts, and they've served us well over millions and millions of years. And uh, but were, they were designed or essentially evolved for a different time. So, for example, the, the, one of the funny little examples that we use in the book is, um, you know, we might be focused on sugar. So but uh, in reality, you know, finding a carrot uh, in the days of when we were foraging would it be would be a big win. And uh, so that, you know, carrot might have less than, you know, equivalent of one sugar cube in it. Uh, but a chocolate shake today has 27 sugar cubes in it. In the equivalent. So that's like cupping both hands together filled with sugar cubes. And, and this is what we ingest. So in other words, our survival instincts are, are still active, and they're still motivating our behavior. But our environment is changing so fast. And it's such a rich ecosystem now with everything at our fingertips, that we really don't have a way of mitigating that. And we're in, we're almost we're overindulging. In, in everything. And this is not just food. The book, we get into the idea that this is our social world too. And it's fundamentally, in just the last few decades, changing the way that we communicate with each other. And it's having negative consequences uh, for our health. And uh, evolutionary psychologists, we call this evolutionary mismatch. So it's a type of maladaptation to our environment. But it's, it's kind of like the tortoise and the hare that, you know, the gap is widening, but the the, the hair being our fast moving environment and the, the tortoise being our evolutionary uh, hardwiring, but uh, our hardwiring will always tend to win out the day. And this is where we're, we're finding that some of the consequences are, are a detriment to our health. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Does that imply that we have perhaps reached our limits when it comes to coping with these rapid fire rates of change we're seeing on a variety of fronts on a daily basis and implying that these very much valued survival skills that brought us to this place actually have a limited shelf life. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think so necessarily. Um, you know, I think we're, we're always evolving and uh, we just can't really see that, uh, you know, that rate of evolution uh, play out in front of our, in front of our, you know, our eyes. And so, you know, one of the examples that that um, that I wrote about in the book was one of the fastest evolutionary adaptations in in recent uh, memory, which was, is or or to our knowledge, is um, the evolution of uh, lactose. So, you know, for it took about um, seventy five hundred years for this evolutionary change to take place, and it was because in northern Europe they were able to domesticate cattle and uh, they were begin to start using dairy and in northern europe there's only about five percent of the population that are lactose intolerant and in asia where it's warmer it's about 90 percent that are lactose intolerant so lactose is is essentially the we're born with it as a we're born with the ability to digest lactose uh when we're you know, a mammal that we're born and most mammals are but as they grow older uh, we lose that ability so but again, Europeans have been able to um, evolve, essentially, to be able to, to um, digest lactose. And it's called uh, gene culture coevolution is the fancy word, fancy phrase for it. 
But that took 7,500 years. And that was very, very rapid in terms of evolution. So we're still evolving. The fact that we can't necessarily see it um, in our own lifetime doesn't mean that it's not there. Right. If I may just reframe the question, I said, so I'm saying that evolutionary skills work well because it is a slow process and our progress uh, materially was slow. But does it imply a danger zone or, or, or a crossing point, a tipping point, if you like, where you cannot rely on when your environment is changing so rapidly? One cannot really rely on um, on one's on evolution meeting the challenge. Yeah, I think that's. Uh, yeah, I can imagine what you're saying is you're. You're saying that in our, we have to come up with essentially the ability to manage this um, and, and, right, and mitigate right. this. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And I and I think that um, you know that's fair. We do have some examples um, where um, you know this is this is the case where we've essentially learned um, you know the hard way. Uh, I think that there's some change afoot in our even in the last couple of years where we've been able to see greater awareness with respect to our to our health and and well-being in a in an understanding that modern medicine as it stands in its conventional form right now may not be necessarily uh treating us in in the best way in terms of health prevention and i think that's that that sense of that sort of focus on you know eating better and getting more sleep and uh, these things are you know age old uh, you know yeah. strategies for of life but it seems that there's a, a little bit of a of an awareness increase with respect to how important those are and so I, I do think that that you know humans will be able to figure out a way to deal with this but it may be that we're and in the book t- looks at this is that this gap that we currently have between a fast moving world and our slow moving uh, evolutionary hardwiring, this gap that we're experiencing right now, that it, it could be a phenomena that we're seeing, you know, in the last 30, 40 years, uh, that we may end up closing that gap and finding smarter ways to, again, bring back health into our, into, a, into the center of our being. Cause it's right now it's, um, we're really seeing negative, negative health trends, and they're quite shocking, really, mental and physical. Yeah, I, I would agree with you, and I would also equally agree with you about the fact that medicine needs to change dramatically. Um, point, point well taken. Yeah. Um, now, this comes at a time that societies in general, and healthcare in particular, perhaps, have become somewhat more pro problematic some may even say pathogenic at time why is that and do we have um, healthcare organization and delivery have healthcare organization and delivery contributed to this downward trend i guess that's been alluded to now by the previous uh, statements but can you expand on that a little yeah absolutely um you know, we looked at healthcare quite a bit uh, in the book and uh, and actually the second chapter um, is almost entirely devoted to our to our healthcare system, and I think there's uh, some a few big problems that we can point to. Uh, and let's just use the North American system. So this, you know, Canada, the U.S. I realize there there are different systems there. Um, and the the one you know overall is that we're very preoccupied with managing illness as opposed to preventing illness. So so really, uh, as I as I often say, we have disease care, not healthcare. And uh, so never before have we had so much medical knowledge at our fingertips. So we, you know, you can, 
the average person actually, you go online and you can access the, at least the abstracts of you know 50 million you know peer-reviewed journal articles in 30,000 science journals. And so we we have all this information and we also live at a time, although we may not feel it day to day, but really one of the most secure and, and healthiest periods in our history. And yet, you know, we're in free fall with respect to our, our physical and mental well-being. And doctors are inundated with these disease processes, these chronic, you know, toxic stress and, you know, obesity. And, and they're really trying to stomp out the fires every day when you go to see your family doctor. And there's little time or energy or resources that are putting that are being put into understanding why we're getting these disease and how to how to stop, how to actually prevent them from, from, uh, from happening. And that's, that's one big problem. And the other one is that we're, we're prone to be preoccupied with technology. I love technology. I use it all the time. And, uh, and I really, really appreciate modern medical technology. Um, but you know, this, we focus a lot on that and the alternative to, to that, or at least something that goes in, uh, in parallel to it is to understand human behavior, understand, the behaviors that are causing us to have these um, these you know negative health trends, and uh, in in the in the U.S. and uh, it's the same in Canada, we see um, well, something called despair deaths, and despair deaths are are been noticed as uh, something that happens in in a middle age um, where people essentially die from. Uh, an overindulgence in things that harm them. So whether it's, um, you know, the use of alcohol, whether it's uh, opioids or other medications or even smoking, um, these things in combination can exacerbate other chronic disease processes and people are dying. And that's why um, it, it wasn't too long ago in the last decade or so that they noted that that on average, that the, the, the American lifespan was actually in decline. And that, if you looked at it over, you know, the for Western nations, if you looked at it for a thousand years of history, that was the first time that we didn't see a small incremental increase in lifespan. We, we were seeing a decrease, and that was because of the the despair deaths. So we have we have two out of three adults um, in both Canada and the U.S. You know, are either overweight or obese now, and the the medical system is, you know inundated, very, very busy with dealing with metabolic disease and, you know, non-alcoholic fatty liver and diabetes. And, and the last thing that I think that in terms of our medical system that people should understand, and it's a really good incentive for staying out of hospitals, unless you really need them, is that our hospitals are rife with human error. And we have an example in the book, which is when I actually dug into the numbers, it was really shocking for me even to, to do this. And I had to double check and triple check this, but uh, it's, an, it's an interesting comparison. And so in 2007 in Iraq, during the surge, there was 160,000 troops that were sent uh, to, the, to Iraq and the US suffered 904 uh, casualties. So that was their worst uh, year. And in the same year, 35.1 million Americans visited modern US hospitals. And by some estimates, upwards of 400,000 deaths were occurred due to preventable underscore that preventable human error. So if you crunch the numbers, your chance of dying was greater visiting a US hospital than serving in the deadliest year in Iraq. And, uh, you know, not to not to take away from the, the horrors of war, this is just a numbers game, but, but I found that really, really astonishing. Uh, so when you dig into it, 
about 20, you have about a 25% chance of being harmed when you go into a modern hospital in Canada by per capita is even worse. So we have, um, by last estimates, about 23,000 preventable deaths each year in hospital. Uh, these are preventable deaths due to human error. So, and then we have, uh, by comparison, about 3,000 uh, people dying in car crashes a year and about 16,000 by stroke. So we are, we're actually worse. And if, you, if you're a numbers person in terms of dollars, so in, in Canada, <laughs> hospital error rates, uh, they result in about 1.1 million extra hospital days of uh, hospital stays. And uh, that's about $6 billion of taxpayers' money. So, uh, ho- so hospitals are there if you need them. But I think as a, as a society at the community level, we want to do our very best at the prevention side of medicine so that we don't necessarily have to go into hospitals. We can certainly do a lot better at reducing error in hospitals too. And I've worked a lot on that, but it's an uphill battle. Right. Of course, with the prevention, the problem we're not seeing, we, the reason we're not seeing it is because these consultation times are so short that patients never really fully understand in chronic disease what they're meant to do. They don't have a full grasp of the rationale. And the problem with that is that how motivated can one be when you're not entirely sure why you're doing it? It's like, remind me why I have to do all of this due diligence. And that is an ongoing problem for us, as well as an explanation for why outcomes for chronic diseases are really poor when compared with acute disease, surgical conditions, infections for which we have antimicrobials and so forth. That's very interesting. Um, Please explain how you feel societal changes are complicating our well-being. Yeah, thanks for asking that. It's um, a big part of the book was focused on the social side. That was basically, uh, you know, my forte was as a social scientist was looking at at um, how our society is is changing so quickly. So, you know, society. I guess by definition has a lot of moving parts, but um, if we leave medical technology aside and just look at, at um, how society um, changes around us, we should, we should, again, by all rights, be getting healthier and healthier uh, because of the, of the amount of information that we have on, on how to be healthier. But if we can drill down into kind of two big themes, one is, is the pace of change, which we've talked about how fast society is moving. And the other is, is what is changing. So we have a, what by all measure, a frenetic pace of life right now. This, the speed of, of our life is, is, is almost feels out of control to many people. And, mm-hmm. you know, we all kind of inherently feel that, that the, you know, the ground is kind of shifting beneath our feet and we're all <laughs> trying to get a, an, an anchor hold here. It's a foothold. And it's, it's the same as, you know, basically over the last couple of years is what we felt it more, more so. But the speed of change is, is happening very, very fast. So, for example, you know, it took 40 years for, for radio to reach 50 million users and cell phones uh, less than 15 years to reach 50 million users. And YouTube was less than one year. And big companies now can come and go in a, in a matter of a year or so where not that long ago, a big company would last uh, 70 years. So things are changing. Everything is just changing faster and faster right now. Even the generational gaps, it's not 20, 30 years anymore. The generations, we're seeing f- fundamental changes to every 10 years. And, and uh, obviously, it's, it's not necessarily defined by the generation of, of 
you know, one person having another child versus having another child, we're seeing fundamental shifts in the way that we think uh, faster and faster and faster. So one of the things that, you know, we, it comes to light is that when our future is unknown to us, that's when humans get stressed. And we know that one of the variables in terms of having so-called happy life is, is having some control over future state. And I think this is why we find sometimes nostalgia or things that are nostalgic com uh, comforting is because we, we sense we can, we sort of go, oh, ha, this feels, this feels right. And, and we're not in this, this world where we don't have any un idea of what's happening over the horizon. And I think that's distressing for a lot of people. And I think also, you know, what is changing? So our, our social life, in, in particular, our, the way that we connect. So one of the, one of the things that uh, we looked at in the book was we looked at the centenarians. So those people that, you know, live over 100 years old and, and uh, you know, there's the um, famous studies on those. And one of the one of the, the most fascinating things was, uh, and this is the blue zone part of the blue zone studies. One of the things that was most fascinating was looking at telomere length. So telomeres are on the chromosomes. They're like the they're like the little um, plastic ends on your shoelaces that hold the shoelace from fraying. And as we age, these telomeres get shorter and shorter and shorter. And uh, so, by lot by way of that logic, if they are slightly longer. Um, you are biologically, uh, uh, you know, a younger person. So with the, the, the telomeres were quite long, which means that they had, you know, uh, a healthier, younger uh, bodies, physiology. And the, uh, the, um, when they ended up uh, studying those who were moved away from the family unit and lived by themselves, the same individuals, they noticed that telomeres dramatically shortened so really it had to do with not sure there's diet and there's exercise and everything else and, and an active lifestyle, but the social connection uh, and the social support that these individuals felt in the, in the way that they lived um, was a ma was a major focus or a major um, attribute to their, to their long and healthy lives. And, and I think that is, is where we need to focus. And that's, and that's what we're seeing with respect to our society changing um, you know, there's all sorts of understanding now that that our social world and uh, the positive and the negative has a direct correlation um, with our with our health. And so it's the speed of, of the way things are changing and then also how we're communicating with each other. And the fact that we we although we're online and, you know, so-called social media, uh, that that actually you know, may be creating disconnects uh, between individuals and that we're suffering because of that. Oh yeah, there's no substitute for person-to-person -person contact. And, um, certainly we've seen what effect uh, the recent events have had on, on the elderly. Um, and then one of the reasons why the biopsychosocial approach uh, is recommended for every kind of chronic disease because it impacts hugely on the person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We, you know, the, the levels of loneliness um, that we're seeing, um, you know, and loneliness is, it, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're just sitting by yourself. It means you feel lonely. Right. And, uh, you know, regardless of how many people are around you, regardless if you're walking down the street in Manhattan, and there's, you know, thousands of people around you, if you feel lonely and disconnected, 
then you're lonely. And that's, and we're seeing, you know, a direct, you know, consequence of that. Yeah, for sure. It's like being in, in a partnership or a marriage. Um, it, it could be an alienating experience. It, it, it isn't necessarily supportive. And it's, it often is a factor in, for example, uh, heart attacks and unsupportive spouse can be a major factor, just like uh, high sugars or, or cholesterol could be. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We had a, um, there's a really fascinating example in the book, um, the broken heart effect. And we looked at the social uh, world and how, how the death of a spouse or another catastrophic um, stressor in your life can can lead to real physical, almost immediate um, effects. And um, one it, one that was fascinating was it's it's kind of a wordy one, but it's called Takosubo cardiomyopathy. And what it is is essentially a broken heart. And it's yeah, it's the it's like a, it's an intense and overwhelming stress response and it leads to uh, the temporary enlargement of the left ventricle and so it can't really pump properly and so you you suffer from you know uh, almost a hypoxic type state and uh, it can be confused with a heart attack but this is uh, you know now linked to you know in incredibly you know acute levels of stress and um, you know we know that in the in the two years after the death of a spouse the the surviving spouse is is at risk of, uh, of, you know, stress and anxiety and all of the associated negative health consequences that go with that. And of course, for centuries, um, novelists have known about this, where they talk about somebody would end up in seclusion, dying of a broken heart. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And the, and the, even if it's not as, you know, catastrophic as that event, um, you know, it, we have a, we have a wear and tear that can happen on our body. And, um, you know, some, some of those in, you know, sort of the functional and integrative medicine talk about allostasis, which is, you know, kind of our, our body's ability, you know, our body and brain's ability to maintain a kind of a happy middle zone between high and lowest levels of, of stress. And if you, if you have low levels of chronic stress over a period, a long period of time, you get a wear and tear on your body. And, uh, and some of that uh, can be as you know as um potent as you know the traditional biomarkers of of disease process and uh, right. they've, they've studied that it is really really interesting and one of the things that we know that re that reduce the so-called allostatic load of a life is uh strong social networks so again right. the the social side is a is a, is a magic pill <laughs> right sorry um we just have to take a break here this is dr trevor campbell on healthscape we will be turning shortly uh, with Dr. Robert Barrett. Are you satisfied with your chronic pain treatment? Chronic pain experts agree that recovery can only occur when the psychological and social issues which help trigger and drive the chronic pain are treated along with the other problems. Medications, injection therapy, and a range of physical therapies may provide temporary relief of symptoms but they don't actually address the root causes that drive the chronic pain. I'm Dr. Trevor Campbell, a chronic pain consultant and author of The Language of Pain, a self-help book for those struggling with chronic pain. Add this type of therapy to your existing treatment plan and experience the difference. Get your copy of my book, The Language of Pain on Amazon 
And for further direction, there's also the Language of Pain online course available on my website, www.trevorcampbellmd.com. Act now to take back your life. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Are you looking for a path to better health rather than just avoiding disease? A good deal depends on your environment and overall behaviors. On Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell, we focus on the daily techniques that can help with chronic pain, addiction, trauma, and disease. You can take a more active approach to taking control of your health and your life. Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell can be heard every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. If you have a question or comment about the show, please send an email to host at trevorcampbellmd.com. Now back to the show. How large a role has the proliferation of technology played in these societal changes? Uh, yeah, it's enormous. Um, it, it ties directly into our, our social world because it's it's really it's how we communicate. And uh and, and not only that, I mean, it's uh, the technology aspect, particularly social media, it, it almost exacerbates our, our evolutionary hardwiring in a sense, because we're, we're always, we're very much attuned to social connection. And you can imagine this does hark back to our evolutionary history. Uh, we, it was very, very important that we are part of a group, that we have value in that group, uh, that we uh, don't want to be ostracized. So we're always trying to uh, we're always aware of the fact that we need to present ourselves in a way to others that increases our status or our value. If you're very high status in the group, then that's great um, because it's unlikely that you're going to be going to be kicked out. Um, and that was a basic survival instinct. So when you look at something like social media uh, and and status, um, that's a, that plays a big part. Uh, there's a, a theory in psychology called social comparison theory. And uh, basically says just that, that we're constantly, constantly trying to compare ourselves to others. Um, we, we see posts online, you can't help but then try to think about, you know, you know, is this something that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm better at, or is this something that I'd like to aspire to? Um, but we don't always feel the, you know, a positive um, motivation from those posts. And some of us feel, you know, quite, quite negative, and a lot of us. And so, uh, that's where you start to see uh, some of the anxiety and the stress that uh, play out with the use of uh, technology and particularly social social media. So we're obsessed with this this uh, status element. Um, and then the other thing too is just the the use of it, the fact that we're uh, we're on the, the phones um, and devices so much. And I, I once again I'm 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 guilty of that too. I, I love the technology and I'm surrounded by it, and so I certainly use it. But but we just have to be aware of how it plays out on this, you know, our our hardwiring. And, and for example, when you pull the phone out of your pocket and you look at it, um, if you're a frequent phone user, you're going to get a hit of dopamine, and that dopamine is a it plays directly into the reward center of our brain. 
And dopamine is the same thing. It's a neurotransmitter. Same thing that gets you going in the morning and saying, hey, you should get a coffee because remember you like really like coffee. It makes you feel good. And so that's it. That's the dopamine neurotransmitter. So it keeps us coming back. And same as oxytocin and, and other other uh, neurotransmitters and hormones, uh, these flow when we when we use social media. So the, the problem is, again, is that um, all those things being, you know, what our brain wants, uh, it's the social side that is really the part that that ends up um, creating the harm because of the, of the potential loneliness and the, the stress and the anxiety uh, that are associated with that. And we see that particularly with, with young people as well. So the uh, loneliness, I think you mentioned earlier, the you know elderly um, being lonely. And we see that in young people as well, particularly heavy, heavy uh, social media users can be particularly lonely. And once again, it, loneliness is, is if, if you feel lonely, it doesn't mean that you necessarily are isolated from other people if you feel lonely. And that's so the, the National Academy of Sciences and Engineering and Medicine says that about one third of people over 45 feel lonely. And, uh, and, and that's something that can, uh, you know, can equate to direct physical, you know, health consequences. And we, we see that the, the UK, minister, UK now is a minister of loneliness. And um, as, as they consider, yeah, they consider loneliness to be a public health emergency and uh, more, even more dangerous than obesity. And, and uh, by some, some uh, estimates, uh, even as harmful as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So uh, uh, it's a real, yeah, it's a real problem. Sobering for sure. My own concern, a growing concern, is the hostility I see. You know, these so-called pounceniks that just anything they get, they tear it apart. And I, I often think it's a certain of some of our uh, social media platforms limit the number of characters. And I'm thinking, you know, people are often trying to posture in their, their, their uh, message and so forth, and they're not focusing on clarity and lucidity. And I think we set ourselves up under certain circumstances for the conflict and argumentation and, and, um, and trolling, quite frankly. Yeah, oh, for sure. And, uh, you know, I won't mention which, which platform, but there's some social media platforms that I consider the road rage of the internet. And it's sort of like people get behind their wheel, people get behind the wheel of their car and they completely change, you know, and uh, who they are. And I think that there's something that happens when people get behind the screens too. And they have that sort of degree of anonymity uh, that, and they don't have to, they don't have to look somebody in the face and then try to, you know, argue their point and have that, that dialectic back and forth flow of conversation. They can just put the little punchy line out there on the internet and try to sound witty. And, but we have to also remember that, that as much as it seems like it's um, conflictual um, and uh, full of animosity, which it could be uh, that, that in fact, they are also looking for likes. And so for, uh, heavy social media users look for likes and, uh, and positive responses to whatever they say as the currency that feeds their, once again, their, their, their status within their chosen group. So as much as it sounds like they're, you know, saying something really mean, and they might be saying something really mean or calling somebody out, it's really for their own audience. It's, only, it's for their own community of, of choice. And, and, and that's what really drives, drives this. It's the currency that they feed upon. And that's the social, social status part. 
This um, social media fixation also is exacerbates the inactivity. We know from the last 20 years that a sedentary job carries in itself risks for cardiac uh, and metabolic disease. You know, the mere sitting for eight hours a day, and they also make it equivalent to 30 or 45 cigarettes a day. So this comes at a time when people are, are doing a lot of screen time anyway. Um, you mentioned quite a bit about uh, substances, chemicals. Why do we have this fascination with chemicals? Now, here I'm not talking about the addictions, uh, the totally different category, but uh, there seems to be always a rush towards a chemical solution, possibly even first line. Um, now, is this some? Is this simply because they offer an escape, or is there some sort of communal intuitive rush towards a possible solution in an ever-changing society? I think there's I think there's a lot of reasons. I mean, we've first of all, we have a lot of in-house chemicals. We have to remember that um, chemicals are make us who we are, um, and they already do inform our behavior. And a lot of that is in-house in terms of the neurotransmitters and the hormones yeah. <clears throat> that uh, motivate us to eat, drink, or you know, or find a mate. Um, and then, as we mentioned, you know, social media is like pouring gasoline on on all of that and these internal flames and, and really getting them roaring. Um, but I think that um, first of all, we are in an age of of so-called modern medicine, where our technology and pharmaceuticals are getting better and better. So uh, we the chemicals are a convenient um, remedy for life uh, for many people, whether prescribed or um, or not prescribed, and and, and it's it part has to do with the way that um, treatment happens. Um, you know, if you go into um, talk to your MD um, and you have anxiety or stress, well, hopefully um, there would be some intervention that could be finding out the root cause of it. And that could be through counseling or, or psychiatry um, or other means. But um, for many people, um, and this is discussed openly in Canada as well, uh, that, and particularly in the US too, um, they may not have access to that. They may not have a, plan, a healthcare plan that allows for that. It could be you know, very expensive, uh, the time and the resources, and there could be wait periods before you see a professional um, a specialist. So um, these are constraints that are, you know, exist in the, in the modern system. And so the solution is, okay, here's a pill. So you can take a pill and, uh, and hopefully that, that fixes you. So we have a lot of people on pills now and, uh, you know, ADHD drugs, uh, for kids are, are nearly in adults too, I suppose, are nearly half as big as the coffee industry now. And so you have about 10% of the kids, uh, in the U S are on some form of ADHD drug too. Uh, and then, and then there's then sort of the, uh, the use of, drugs as kind of nootropics or um, the, the sort of mood enhancing or cognitive enhancing uh, drugs. And, and they're very, very commonly used now. So Adderall is used by professionals, uh, you know, from Wall Street executives to university students to construction workers um, to, you know, as a, as a type of speed. And then, you know, if you're sleeping, you have to have your sleeping pills on the other side to, to help you sleep. And, and, and these people often perform very, very well on these. And that's why, you know, they want to use them because they're there and they're affordable or they, you know, they can use them and uh, they get good performance out of them. But we've always had uh, a fixation with ways to um, 
to dull our senses or to uh, to sharpen our senses. And uh, we have a lot of really interesting examples in the book too. And um, one of them was looking at, um, I don't know if you know the story, there was a, uh, the doctor that President Kennedy had, um, Dr. Max, who, was, uh, who had fled Nazi Germany. And he used to design these energy formulas, uh, which is an elixir of certain chemicals that would that would enhance people's performance. And he, and he became quite famous amongst Hollywood stars like Elvis Presley and Marilyn Monroe and Liz Taylor. And then he became the doc for the energy formula for President Kennedy and Jackie Kennedy too. And he'd fly in on a non-commercial little, little tiny airplane like 30 times a year to, to Washington, D.C. And, uh, and um, President Kennedy also had Addison's. And uh, he had a hard time talking sometimes. So Dr. Max actually on the, on the eve of the most important, one of the most important debates in U.S. history, the Kennedy-Nixon debate, uh, Kennedy could barely talk, and uh, Dr. Max came in and he injected him with methamphetamine directly into his into his neck, and uh, he was able to talk. And that actually that that debate turned the tide of U.S. history. And uh, so, and they're, and they're used widely through war and amphetamines back in World War II, and you know, 150 million. You know, bennies, as they were called, were used during the World War II, and even speed pills were even carried on the Apollo 13 mission too. And were during the famous uh, time where they had to deal with the the near catastrophe, where NASA was trying to encourage them to take those to take the pills too. So we've always had a we've always had a, a sort of love affair with with chemicals, and I think that it's only going to get more so. And we have to again figure out uh, a way to manage it, and again try to focus on that prevention side. That's interesting uh, uh, background. Um, what do you feel are the, I'm not asking for solutions, but the trends that can reverse, if, if possible, the negative consequences we currently see? Um, well, I think one is that we have to, first of all, we have to understand. We have to understand what is happening under the hood um, with respect to our hardwiring, um, what it is that's baked into us from an evolutionary standpoint that informs our behavior um, and that, that we're being influenced by this all the time. And once you do that, um, you have that basic understanding, I think you, then it gives you at least a, you know, a finger hold to start to to change your life and, uh, and understand it. And people are doing that, like I mentioned with, you know, sleep and, and understanding the importance of that, um, why they shouldn't just stay up all night looking at social media or watching, you know, television that, you know, it's really, really important that you, that you start to wind down properly and you have that sleep hygiene and you sleep. So we're seeing some of those, those management strategies come about, but we really have to understand that this is informs our, our daily habits. And a lot of us just really do understand that and uh, we have there's lots of cool examples in the book so like um, for example when people take selfies you know the young people take selfies and um you know the the head tilt for women uh, in a selfie the the ideal head tilt is around 12 degrees and for men it's about eight degrees and but we don't understand it's not like we go and measure that we just it's it's our evolutionary um, mating uh hardwiring that tells us that you know that's an appealing um, degree of head tilt. And it's, it's, a, it's funny because there were so many examples like that, that, that inform our behavior. And we really don't know why, why it's happening. So first of all, it's understanding it. And then in terms of intervention, 
Um, as a parent, we can set a great example with our kids. So we need to understand our children's brains and, and how they work with uh, technology and screens. So the, the child's brain, you know, develops from the hind brain to the midbrain to the forebrain. And so that's basically bottom to the to up bottom up to the forehead. And flashy television screens, uh, flashy shows in the early uh, periods of life can create a high state of arousal because the the television's moving at a at a faster rate than normal life, and um, it can create a, t- a state of chronic stress and toxic stress. And uh, so they can get caught in a kind of kind of a fight or flight response. And so they become hypersensitive to everything around them and they have emotional regulation issues and uh, can often be diagnosed with having a, you know, either an ADHD or some other type of, of, um, of diagnosis. Uh, when in fact, um, some of the, it could be that some of that has to do with their, the time that they spent in really being overly stimulated by these, you know, flashy shows on, on TV. So, so those kinds of things, we just have to understand and, and manage. And, and then I think in a word, we need to rehumanize, we need to rehumanize our lives. And we have to, we recognize that, yeah, social media, even though it says social, <laughs> as part of social media, it may not be entirely social. And uh, we actually uh, have to recognize that there's maybe a lot of people that are lonely out there, and you have to be able to have real social connection with, uh, with real people face to face. And I think that we all inherently understand that, when you feel that real friends and family have your back and they're, and you'll look after each other, there's a sense of, there's a kind of a sense of relief with that. And that, and that would play into de-stressing ourselves and, and reducing that, that toxic stress. So I think that that that's a big part of it is rehumanizing. Right. I would agree. I would think that that's a good starting point because um, just people doing, um, you know, socializing as before, when this becomes available, of course, uh, is something that will awaken a lot of processes that may, you know, connected with that, that can change things. That's mm-hmm. my gut feel. I mean, yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, are there any lessons from history or analogies that might be helpful? Yeah, there are. We, you know, in the book, we talk about a few, about a few of them. Um, some big ones that were lessons learned, like the final chapter of the book looks at um, the, the Black Plague that um, was primarily hit Europe and then the Renaissance after um, and how we, you know, kind of came out of that that period. Um, but uh, looking at some other examples, um, you know, I, th- I think that um, we have learned from, we've learned how powerful our social world is and how powerful our social interaction is. And to use a fairly modern example, uh, a case that we that we studied um, in the book was the the space shuttle shuttle Challenger, and that's the one that in 1986 took off on a very very cold cold Florida morning, and had the the O ring, which is a O ring is is like the on those large booster rockets, they're segmented, and the the little rubber ro- O rings that are between the segments are are uh, susceptible to cold. And so it took off and the O-ring failed and it caused uh, some of the uh, fluid to leak out and it caught fire. And it, you know, as we know the, as we know the story, it blew up and it blew up 73 seconds after takeoff and nine miles above the earth. But the, the social story of that um, and the one that led to one of the biggest changes of safety culture in, in history 
uh, was the social dynamics. So prior to the flight, um, there was questions about whether or not it was too cold, and there was immense pressure for that flight to t for that flight to go. It had been it had been postponed and postponed, and there was immense pressure. And there was a couple of people that that spoke up and said, "I think it's too cold, and that we haven't tested it at this temperature." And but because of the pressure uh, to get this launch happening, um, many people uh, stayed silent. And even though they thought that it wasn't the greatest idea. And uh, the, that led to a, a massive uh, safety culture um, uh, investigation. And, uh, and it actually, when I, I do talks about this, and I, I talk about it in comparison to the ash conformity experiment in 1951, the, the era that you could do anything to anybody in psychology. And uh, that's the one where people had to, to compare one line to the length of three other, three other lines on, on a piece of paper. And uh, the answer was obvious. And as they went around the group, the, the room, um, there was only one person that was really being tested and everybody else in the room was basically in on the, in on the trick essentially. And they would all say the wrong line. And even though it was obvious, so it came to the last person and the last person would, would then um, often go along with the group uh, because they, they, they wanted to spare themselves, um, you know, the, the, the social, friction of speaking out against the group and that's what happened to space shuttle challenger is that this conformity um the you know the, the not wanting to speak out um uh at risk of losing your social status in the group was so powerful that um, even in a life or death situation um people stayed quiet and uh so they had to really obviously you know analyze that social dynamic and work for that there's a lot of really interesting examples of 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 how we saw the the power of the social side um, affect us and and how we you know managed that or how we we came out the other side and the the um the last one is the black plague is 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 really quite interesting as well uh, you you remind me of something malcolm gladwell wrote um about an airline in asia that had several incidents and it was found to be the hierarchical structure was very rigid that's and right one couldn't really question the superior. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Exactly. And we even saw that with the San Francisco crash, um, you know, a couple of years ago. Um, the uh, the authority gradient in the flight deck was so was so high uh, that um, there was people didn't want to speak out, even though you know, once again, this is a life or death situation. Correct. Yeah. No. With shocking consequences. Um, and the bubonic uh, plague, the Black Plague, um, mid 14th century, you feel, um, do you believe that we will see significant positive change post pandemic, whatever that may look like? Yeah. yeah, that chapter was interesting because it was written prior to the current pandemic. So uh, it was, you know, kind of interesting to have written it at the time and then get the book published and then we have a pandemic. but. But the entire last chapter looks at the Black Plague, which is arguably one of the darkest periods of human history. I mean, one third of the of the people in Europe were were wiped out by it. Um, and but it was followed by the Renaissance, um, which you know means uh, actually means rebirth, which is uh, which is was one of the most culturally prolific areas in human history. So it was interesting to see the dark period with the period of light after that. And 
there were some things that happened in that time. You know, the old agrarian feudal system collapsed um, because a lot of the workers had died. Um, there was an increased urbanization and a greater sense of personal identity and self-worth. So people thought, well, maybe there's more to life than just being a cog in a wheel. Um, maybe I'm important and maybe my well-being is important and I should look after myself. And there's greater sanitation and, you know, humanism came about. So the emphasis on the individual uh, so, you know, we see that and even education changed and, you know, courtly love uh, um, in terms of, you know, romantic love, we should call it. And those things were, um, you know, all came to the fore in the, in, in the Renaissance. And so I do think that there are positive things that can come out of dark times. And, uh, you know, obviously we'll have to see what those are. But I do think that um, there is a greater sense of awareness now on uh, uh, certainly disease processes. Uh, we're very attuned to in infections, obviously. Um, mental health awareness. Um, there are many people that are realizing that they have to take better care of themselves. Um, and I think that will, um, you know, the pandemic really is the greatest psychological experiment in, in human history. And it, it, there's no doubt. And so we have yet to see what this, how this will play out in terms of the, the results, but um, in terms of the psychology side of things, but, but certainly um, our um, understanding of ourselves and awareness um, and maybe the divisiveness that could, that comes from living a life online, as you mentioned, uh, where we're kind of the road rage analogy um, maybe there's a sense that, wait a minute, you know, this is, that's not the, the greatest way to be. We have to have that real social, social contact. Uh, and that's, uh, uh, and that's maybe part of our, the story that, that needs to be written still. And there's no doubt that we're still going to be living with technology and, and doing meetings online. But, but I do think that we're going to recognize the importance of that face-to-face, -face, uh, communication and, and just how important that, that humanization it really is. I think another point, if I may just make, um, about 40 years ago, there was a program by Lord Kenneth Clark, who's a celebrated uh, art historian, among other things, and called Civilization. And he, you know, he goes to all these places in Italy, the city-states produced all this magnificent art, sculpture, and, and architecture at the time of the Renaissance, of course. But, um, you know, and he says, he says, in so many centuries, though, you know, they had all the conflict. These houses, families were fighting each other. And Switzerland, on the other hand, had complete stability and peace, and they produced the cuckoo clock. I've never forgotten that. <laughs> uh, and I think what he was trying to say is it's the darkness and the struggle, the toil, hardship that kind of maybe galvanizes us to, to communally look for something better and come up with the goods, because yeah. ultimately we have to come up with the goods. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, the other part of, of, of the Renaissance is the, you know, the, the, the focus on art and of course, science and medicine and philosophy, but the art side also f feeds our senses. Oh, so, yes. so we look at, you know, that, that, uh, the dopamine system and the reward system that, that also feeds into it. Yeah. Dr. Barrett, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the, our show. We'd like to have you again at some stage. Uh, thank you very much for, for being with us, and it's been a most interesting session. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a great discussion. Thank you. Uh, and this is Dr. Trevor Campbell, your host, signing off. Healthscape. Thank you for tuning in to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. 
We hope you'll join us again next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time or listen anytime on demand on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a healthy week.